Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. Welcome back to the podcast. We're going to start out with an email right off the bat. Uh, if you'd like to have your emails featured on our podcast, please email me at rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com. We also have a phone number, and you can call in to one eight four four durango That's one eight four four three eight seven two six four six. It's a voicemail-only line, so you don't have to be nervous about anybody answering the phone. You can just leave your question, and I will edit it appropriately and get it on the show. Okay, so Ryan emailed in and he said, I think I have a crush on my therapist. and I've been seeing her for about six months. I think about her all the time and I pay close attention to what I wear and how I look when I go in to see her. I don't think my therapist has any idea of my feelings and I'm pretty sure it's not reciprocal. I just can't shake these thoughts. I don't want to stop seeing her and I have a good relationship with my wife and I'm not sure what to do. Um, so I can't think of any other professional relationship that is as intimate as this one. And by intimate, I don't mean sexual. I mean it's vulnerable and it's intense. And we open up to our therapist and we share our deepest hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities. And we feel held and supported in this space. And that can often lead to feelings for the therapist. It can also lead to feelings in the other direction where the therapist can find themselves drawn to their clients. It's one of the reasons we have such strict rules in place around what that relationship needs to look like. A therapist should never be friends with their clients. They shouldn't hire them to house sit or mow their lawn or babysit their kids. I've had clients that I would have loved to hang out with socially, but it's just not possible. And sometimes they'll say, well, maybe I'll just stop seeing you so that we can hang out, <laughs> which is flattering, but it doesn't work that way. Even if I stop seeing them, I still can't be friends with them. So, um, it's just a bad idea as far as boundaries go to mess around those relationships. And as a practitioner, as a therapist, you can lose your license. So um, if you're a therapist and you're having feelings for your client that are outside the bounds of that professional relationship, then you should be getting supervision around that. Uh, Carl Rogers was the father of client-centered psychotherapy, and he coined the term unconditional positive regard um, back in the mid-50s. And what he was really talking about was love. As therapists, we fall in love with our clients. A lot of therapists won't use that language because of everything that I just talked about. And, uh, you know, that's their choice. But I'm not afraid of that word, and I use it. And, um, you know, how can we sit there and watch our clients dig into their pain and share their vulnerabilities and not fall in love with them? This doesn't mean that we want to date, fuck, or marry our clients. It means that we see them fully and completely in all of their messy glory, and we are there for them anyway. I put them more in the kind of this, like a parental kind of love. Um, I have two kids, and they're teenagers and kind of adults now, and so for me, that's an easy place for for me to place that type of unconditional love for my clients. Okay, so Ryan, back to your question. Um, well, you need to do a couple of things. First, it's important for you to see your feelings for what they are and what they might not be. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that one of the things that might be driving some of the feelings for your therapist is how truly heard and truly seen you feel. She's there for you. She gets you. She encourages and inspires you in ways that maybe no one in your life ever has. So here's the part, hard part for you to hear. 
that's her job. You need to know that all the things she's doing for you are genuine. I'm sure that she truly cares for you and honestly wants to see you be the best you that you can be. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that's not real, but it's also the reason you're paying her. We all need people at times in our lives to be 100% on our team. And if she is there for you in that way, it can feel really intense. And she's not bringing her own agenda in other than what's best for you. That's one of the things that you get out of a good relationship with your therapist. So the first thing you need to do is to reality check some of what you're creating in your head. Take it out of the fantasy zone and realize that if it were ever to be an actual relationship with her, which it will not be, it wouldn't look like it looks right now. It wouldn't feel the same because she would be showing up with her own stuff that right now is not in the room and shouldn't be. So following closely on the heels of that, you need to understand that a relationship with her is not possible. So don't indulge your fantasies around this any more than you can help uh, because it's never going to be anything but just that. So you're kind of torturing yourself. I'm not saying that you can help it a lot of the time. Sometimes our brains just have to like get on the horse and ride. But whenever possible, recognize that you're kind of following down a path that's just never going to happen. Okay, so the next thing to do is is also kind of general advice for anyone in a monogamous relationship that finds themselves attracted to someone else. Talk to your partner about it. In a healthy relationship, both partners find themselves attracted to other people sometimes, and both parties should be able to handle hearing that their partner is finding someone else attractive. Often just giving voice to this helps those feelings go away a lot faster. It's part of the process of taking it out of that kind of in-your-head fantasy place where it's free to grow and bloom into a wildly irrational scenario where everything's perfect and all your needs get met all the time and the sex is always the best you've ever had. It's not real. Okay, I'm going to tell a quick story here that um, anybody who I've worked with in person has heard probably at least once. (laughs) Uh, So... One of the best therapists I ever had was this old retired psych nurse from New York City. She was, God, uh, she might have been in her 80s when I was working with her. She was at least in her late 70s. Um, You couldn't make shit up that would shock this woman. She had heard everything a hundred times over. So my wife Anna and I had gone to her for some couples work, and I think we had two sessions, and then she looked at Anna and said, yeah, you're good to go. And then she looked at me and said, you need to come back and talk to me. Which was great, actually. I loved I loved talking to her. But um, in one of our couple sessions, she said, if you put a drop of perfume on a windowsill and you close the windows and the doors in a small room and you come back in half an hour, it's going to be overwhelming. The only thing you're going to be able to smell in that room is that perfume. If you crack the windows and the doors and you come back in half an hour, you're not going to be able to even tell that it was there. You might even pick up a hint of it, but it's not going to be this overwhelming force in the room when we keep secrets we run the risk of a thought or a concept growing out of control into something that's often wildly unreasonable and distorted because we haven't shared it and we haven't received any feedback around it so it can grow unchecked so this is why i recommend talking about this kind of thing because it just often isn't a big deal, but if you keep it kind of locked into your own mind, it can become a bigger deal than it needs to be. If you don't feel like your partner can handle hearing this, and some relationships aren't there, um, then find someone else that you can talk to about this. Okay, so back to Ryan. Uh, Thanks for indulging my story. Um, So if none of those things help, then you're going to need to talk 
to your therapist about this. And even if those things do help, you might want to talk to your therapist about this. You mentioned in your email that you don't believe that it's mutual, that you don't believe she has these same feelings. Um, I'd be curious to hear about why you feel that way, because it sounds like you know that this is mostly your stuff that you're bringing to the table. Um, it's very possible that your therapist can help you sort through those feelings and clear them out. Chances are this isn't the first time she's had that conversation with a client. Um, will it be embarrassing and weird and maybe feel even a little icky for you? Yes, absolutely. Um, but if your work um, with her feels valuable, then I would urge you to put it out there so that she can do her job, which is to help you with uncomfortable thought patterns. And this could be a gateway to a new level of work for you with her. Um, I hope this is the case, and I, I wish you good luck with that. Okay, let's talk for a minute about what to look for in a therapist when it's time for you to do some work and go out there and try to find a good fit for you. What does a good fit look like? How are you going to know when you find it? A lot of this information is going to be loosely based on um, a blog post that I wrote, and you can find that on DurangoPsychotherapy.com. Uh, you can also link to that site off of uh, the podcast website, which is therapyforhumanspodcast.com. Okay, so you're looking for a therapist. You've gotten some recommendations. Maybe you've looked online. You've made that phone call, which was awkward and weird and scary, and you go in to meet this person. Try to settle your system enough so that you can actually listen to and trust your gut. You should know within a few minutes if this feels like a good fit or not. Don't be afraid to ask questions of your therapist. Who are they? Where did they grow up? Do they have kids? Are they married? Do they have a partner? You know, it, it's okay to ask those questions. And most therapists are going to be okay with disclosing that information to you. If they're not, if they get uncomfortable about any sort of question about who they are, um, then you have to decide if that's the kind of relationship that you want with your therapist. Not that it's going to be about them all the time, but I think that it's important for you to get a small sense of who they are so that you can get a sense for yourself of whether there's somebody that you can really connect with or not. If you don't feel like you can connect, they're probably not a good fit. Okay, so assuming you do feel like they're a good fit, where do you go next? Don't feel like you have to lay every traumatic event in your life out there on the table in the first session. Most therapists are going to want to get a kind of a detailed background on you, things like where you grew up, what your family was like, what your relationships looked like, that kind of thing. If you're coming in for a specific issue that you're struggling with, by all means, put it out there. But don't feel like you have to disclose everything right up front. That's not the way it works. And it's completely acceptable if the therapist asks a question like, do you have uh, anything in your past that you would identify as traumatic or do you have a sexual assault history, anything like that that you're not ready to talk about? You can just say, yes, there's something there, but I'm not ready to talk about it yet. You are in control of how this unfolds. Remember that you are a consumer in this situation and you are in control. If you at any point don't feel like you're in control, or don't feel like you have the ability to just get up and walk away and find another therapist, then you're probably in the wrong therapist's office. So the last thing I have to say about this is the use of silence. It's a therapeutic tool. There's a stereotype of the 
therapist just sitting there in silence while the client squirms. That's abusive. Do not tolerate that from your therapist. I have had clients that have come to me and said, I, you know, I had three sessions with this other therapist and they would leave me sitting in silence pretty much the whole time. And I just wasn't getting anything out of it. That's ridiculous. I had a therapist that did that to me. This was in 1995 in Western Mass. And I was paying her $80 an hour in 1995. Don't even get me started on why salaries haven't really moved up from there since. But the point is she would sit there week after week with a little blanket across her knees, drinking hot water with lemon, and just either look at the floor or occasionally glance at me. And I was 20-something, early 20s. And we would do that for pretty much the whole time. And it was an absolute waste of time. And it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable and like I was doing something wrong. This is not okay. If your therapist is doing this, run, don't walk away from them and find another therapist. Don't get me wrong. Silence can sometimes be a really effective therapeutic tool. And I use it a lot. But there is a moment when that 15 seconds at the very most of silence starts to turn into, instead of a tool, a weapon. You can see your client getting really uncomfortable. This is past the point where they may come forward with some information that is going to benefit them because you've left some space for them to do that. And it is now turned into a power play and it has no place in the therapeutic process. Okay, my rant is over. Uh, and I hope that those tips have given you some sense of what to look for and what to watch out for when you're seeking a new therapeutic relationship. Okay, our next email question is from Nancy, and she asks, why is it so much easier to forgive others and so hard to forgive ourselves? Ugh. Yeah, this is a big one. Uh, so first, let's talk about guilt versus shame. Brene Brown summed it up perfectly, I think. She said, guilt is I did something bad, and shame is I am bad. So guilt can be more removed from our sense of who we are, and it can inform us around things that we did or said that we know had some kind of negative impact on someone else. Shame has all of that too, but it's also wrapped up deeply in our sense of self. That feeling of being a bad person, of not being worthy of others' care or attention, that feeling of being a burden or a bad influence in others' lives, that is some toxic shit, and it will fuck you up if you let it. We all do things and have moments in our lives that we wish to God we could go back and do over. So how do we move on from that? One of the things that I like most about cognitive behavioral therapy is the reality checking component. And one of the tools for that is to imagine what your reaction would be to a close friend coming to you and telling you about the thing that you're upset about. What if it was your friend instead of you that did that bad thing? Would you tell them they're an absolute piece of shit and you never want to see them again? Probably not. So why is it so hard to afford ourselves that same compassion? Does it feel self-indulgent or somehow like we're letting ourselves off the hook? Well, maybe it's time to let yourself off the hook. Maybe you've suffered enough for your crimes against humanity. 
one of the tools I use in my practice with clients who are parents is I ask them if their child came to them and told them about this horrible thing that happened, how would they react? Generally, their reaction would be a whole lot gentler than what they're doing to themselves. It doesn't mean that they will all of a sudden have this flash of insight and feel so much better about whatever it is they're holding shame around, but it gives them a jumping off point. It gives them something to keep coming back to and to check in on how they're treating themselves. The last piece on this is the value of having others in our lives who know our shameful stuff. It might be a therapist or it might be a friend. It might be a romantic partner, but someone that you can trust, that you can lay this shit on, and that at least some part of you can believe them when they look you in the eye and they say, yes, this was a bad thing, but it is not the sum total of who you are. You are more than this thing, and I value you, not in spite of that thing and not because of it, but I value you as an entire human, a beautiful, messy, flawed, amazing human, and I'm glad you're in my life. Please stop hurting yourself around this and love yourself the way I love you. And this is not a one-off deal. For those really big, shameful things, you will have to go back after this thing over and over and over again. It's okay to do that. Keep at it. Don't let it take over and inform your sense of self to the point where your, your whole sense of who you are starts slipping down this hole. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for you, and it's sure not good for anybody else in your life. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to submit a question for our next segment, please email me at rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com. You can also call in to one eight four four durango one eight four four three eight seven two six four six. And I will get your questions on the show. And until I see you again, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 